Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mullinger Meets Canadians is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Joel Burton was born in Neils Harbour, Nova Scotia and grew up in St Margaret Village in Victoria County on Cape Breton Island. He was working for Voices, the world's number one voiceover company in Ontario, when COVID hit and he and his wife decided to come back to Nova Scotia for family support and a better quality of life for their young daughter and newborn son. Joel has a master's degree in English from Dalhousie University and is a highly respected content specialist who uses empathetic storytelling and conversational interviewing for online and offline audiences with everyone from Zeta Cobb to Lyndon McIntyre. He's now producing content for the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries Limited, a 66-year-old seafood company in northern Cape Breton with a focus on harvesting and processing wild sustainable seafood for sales in North America and around the world. Now, I know that the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries purchases a variety of seafood, including lobster, snow crab, halibut and mackerel, from over 125 commercial fishing vessels. And I'm fascinated by this global industry proudly based here in the Maritimes, and I can't wait to learn more. Let's meet Joel. Joel, it is so great to finally meet you, mate. (laughs) Absolutely, James. Uh, Feelings mutual. (laughs) Well, this is very exciting. I've been really so excited to chat with you because you are one of the people who clearly loves the East Coast of Canada as much as I do. And in classic Atlantic Canadian fashion, we seem to have dozens, if not hundreds of connections. There's one degree of separation between everyone here, and we are living proof of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, had a photographer uh, in recently to do some marketing for uh, an initiative with the Victoria Cooperative uh, Fisheries. And oh, yeah. uh, the photographer had a guest and uh, she <laughs> said, hi, uh, this is this is my guest. And he said, nice to meet you. And I said, we already did uh, in Newfoundland uh, back three, four years ago. And we had a great afternoon together after that. So those are the types of connections we have. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those wonderful things about living. It's, it's the one place in the world where if you travel around the rest of Canada or indeed the rest of the world and you meet someone and they say, I have a cousin that lives in Nova <laughs> Scotia or New Brunswick, nowhere else in the world would that be a situation where you could go, oh, I know that person. But here it does work. Yeah, absolutely it does. And and you get that sense of regionality from those connections that it's all brought together you know, by the people who share that common landscape, right? Totally. That's exactly it. I mean, you've obviously traveled around the world. You've lived and worked in different places, but you have been blessed enough to grow up on Cape Breton Island. Can you tell me how you describe that upbringing to people who aren't familiar with the Maritimes? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up rural uh, in northern mm. Cape Breton. And another way to put it is is remote. And, right. <laughs> and increasingly, that remoteness culturally is obviously being challenged with, I think, the rise of a more modern culture pressing on us. 
But, yeah. but that remoteness uh, as well gave us many gifts and uh, many forms of knowledge, uh, oral culture passed down, uh, many generations working together. Um, mm. And that's, I think, the first part to note. Uh, I grew up where the road, the road ends on both counties, Inverness and Victoria. So when you grow up where the road ends, like along the eastern seaboard, I mean, next stop is Newfoundland, which of course was another country. You're growing up at the end of things. And just because you're removed from that a couple generations with less connection, improved transportations and improved roadways, doesn't mean that that sense of being remote and being at the end isn't with you, isn't in you in some ways. And, and the way you proceed through the world to extend cooperation and friendship and laughter and challenge and and really a, a sort of entanglement of people working together for some common purpose. That's really what it's about. Mm. I think a more anecdotal example happened yesterday. I was actually thinking about this podcast a bit and walking along the beach. Um, I was actually listening to your uh, podcast with Doug uh, from Yarmouth. Oh, yeah. And uh, nice. his story was fascinating. And uh, I was walking mm -hmm. my dog and, and we walked up through the path. And it's uh, still, you know early part, mid part of June, um, but it's been a hot June. And I look down on my feet as I ramble through the path and I see a, a small little wild strawberry. And, <laughs> you know, I picked it and ate it and a flood of memories came back. It's, it's memories of walking to my grandmother's house, um, which I'm staying in right now, actually, with my own family. <laughs> oh, and wow. So there's this remoteness, this piece that can be challenging and harsh, but in the more sunny seasons. I think that strawberry is sort of emblematic of something that's very important, of seasonal eating, of mm -hmm. memories with your grandfolks, of being in a place, of coming back home at a much later time in your life, and yet still taking to the same paths. That's so true. And that's such a beautiful way to put it. I, and I love that. That would be the name of your autobiography, Where the Road Ends. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's lovely. No, for sure. I was, uh, I was looking at uh, a folklore book, just kind of brushing up on some of the history of the fisheries I'm, I'm working with now. And it was Off the Beaten Track is, is the title of that. And I helped edit that uh, way back for a community museum project uh, with a friend. And the history of the co-op fisheries is it's an oral history uh, done by a local teacher here. And that's come hell or high water. So those titles give you the truth of the matter. Absolutely. And I love the fact that you make the distinction between the fact that when you grew up there, it was, of course, a, a whole different world. And I say that because obviously right now there is a huge amount of attention on Atlantic Canada, but also indeed any rural areas. Or, or more to the point, there's a huge amount of attention on people wanting to get out of big cities, realising that, A, there's an incredible quality of life that can be enjoyed in rural areas and outside big cities, but also that you can, in essence, work from anywhere. But when you grew up there, of course, there wasn't uh, Zoom or, or Teams or indeed an understanding of that. How do you think your upbringing differs from someone who would, say, be living in a rural area in Atlantic Canada now? I think it differs a lot, but I think I probably was representative, uh, mm. myself, my parents' generation, of change, of uh, telecommunications technology coming to town, really. Um, right. At the same time, in, in many other uh, metropolises worldwide, the introduction of electricity, infrastructure, social and otherwise, obviously was having major impact. But here, hmm. things came later. But my father was of the generation that saw electricity come, who had the first television um, that not replaced, but 
complemented some of those connections to the outer world via the radio before that. But we've always been, people here have always been embracing of technology because mm. it's that which can ensure survival. It's that which can connect you. So no one, I think, the difference between the generation now and, and where I was is I had any, the inheritance of, of telecommunications mm. with we moving from a party line, which was obviously shared, to private phone lines, um, mm. enjoying better roadways and, and more connections. Fiber networks are obviously arriving now with a large project across Nova Scotia, which was in response to everyone needing to work from home, um, not just here, but globally. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I think people are excited with the prospect, the ways of transportation that we've come to rely on. So there's, there's a, a healthy mix of, in everybody here of, of skepticism and yet embracing. And that's really progress here. Mm. A, a younger person here too is going to maybe not have as much connection with, with an older way of life that I've had, be it from fish drying processes to understanding where some of their relatives came from, even in more remote regions than myself. So there's a loss hmm. there. There's always a loss. There's always a loss of knowledge and, and a way of uh, tradition, but there's always a, a forward-looking uh, approach to things here because, again, as I said at the beginning of the question, uh, or my hmm. answer to your question is, uh, that means it's that dance between progress and tradition, right? True, totally true. But I mean, I guess the one constant, and again, I mean, I didn't grow up here, but I mean, I think it's fair to say that the one constant thing about this place and that is somewhat unique to this part of the world is the sense of community. And it, and I, I found it interesting that you mentioned, you know, your, your grandparents and being at a grandmother's house, because for me, my kind of moment of clarity as a child was coming out of a, a kind of a not particularly nice suburb of London and visiting my grandmother in her seaside town and I couldn't believe that there was a place where there would be beaches and beautiful views and friendly people and 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 all of the and so it was this kind of magical oasis that my grandmother lived in 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 a seaside town in England and when I first visited Atlantic Canada in the year 2000 I was just blown away that not only uh, was there another place like this but there was kind of four entire provinces like an entire region of a country was like this and I felt like that sense of community even with shifts in technology and shifts in the way that people live and do business the one thing that these small towns and indeed rural areas in Atlantic Canada have is a community and by that I mean people that look out for each other which doesn't sound strange to us here but to people in other parts of the world it sounds utterly bizarre because it doesn't exist. Yeah for sure I think if you were coming from the region of a town or a city, moving from suburbs in a major metropolis to a rural area, I could see that that feeling of oasis. Uh, and by extension, uh, when you dig a little deeper, or probably as you matured, you started to see that this wasn't an oasis because it was easy. You were witnessing the work of generations communing and cooperating toward hanging on, really. So the community spirit you see in a in a hall supper or a traditional bake sale or um, some type of festival setting is a celebration moment, but it's a moment because it takes so much of the people to get there. It, it's so difficult. It's such an entanglement. Um, yeah. Oftentimes in the city, um, I had this reflection that it was harder for me to ask for help of people and, and neighbors yeah. because the 
connections you have growing up and the help and the cooperation you relied on to get the task done is generational. So, right. so the trust is dispersed over time and space in a way in a rural area that's not the same when you are sort of put in a place or you live next door to somebody. There's a healthy skepticism there of what's the exchange or what's the mutual benefit. And it's not that eroded my trust in people. I was very involved in neighborhoods in particular and uh, downtowns uh, in cities uh, I was a part of. But there's two things at work there. It's the trust that's extended over generations that happens in community. And there's also the real help you need sometimes. The real hard times often comes from family support that's there. So when I'm down and out, when my family, my own young family is challenged, and obviously we had a year of challenges, a year plus of challenges, I want to turn to my family. Yeah. And then I want to return to my associational life by way of if you were part of a group of fish harvesters, uh, if you were a part of a volunteer fire hall, right? It's not family first and associations next. It's a much more um, nuanced and balanced version of life. But there is that always at play of uh, relying on family and then as a community, relying on your associational and, and community life. And it's a really profound thing. And of course, when you travel rural from away, there's this sense of, of magic or you know what my daughter likes to call adventure. Mm. And uh, of course, it is an adventure to go to the beach and to have you know, a bonfire. But there are hard times to enjoy those moments and the hospitality you're greeted with in these types of places comes from people who know who they are and they know where they are. So true. I love the point that you made there at the beginning there about how the community have worked to create this. And, it, and it's interesting you say that because when I, I perform stand-up shows or indeed keynote speeches and obviously more recently uh, primarily virtual gigs I talk a lot about obviously what brought us here and why I'm going to stay here forever and indeed the fact that I've been kind of you know blessed with this kind of gift of living in this place and I always turn to the audience and say thank you for creating this this place and I think they often think that it's lip service and I'm just doing that thing of like you know it's it's all thanks to you but but I really do mean it because exactly what you just said like it's not easy for communities to have created this environment of trust and being there for each other it was hard work it's hard work that small towns and small cities did to, to build this up and now it's an infrastructure that's in place but because it's not an infrastructure that's tangible because you can't touch it or depict it in a political manifesto people don't necessarily realize that it's a thing that has taken a lot of work over decade century whatever it is of communities of families to build that um, and it's fascinating to me that someone like yourself that was born here has such a clear sight of that do you think that comes from traveling why do you think that is that you have such a clear vision on that i was never someone who who grew up and wanted to go away but i was right. never someone who grew up and wanted to stay and i never felt the anxiety of either and in many ways since leaving which amounts to you know two decades uh, now away um, I, i've never felt disconnected and it hasn't just been imaginative or uh, folklorish or mythical like I make the trips home. I attend the weddings. I attend the funerals uh, every chance I can. I am interested in what's happening in the social and and economic life of the people here, of my family. 
and I feel so mm-hmm. linked in that it never was lost for me. So I think yeah. there's something there. Uh, I think there's something there in terms of clarity. I've never thought about having a clear mind on it. And obviously those types mm-hmm. of perspectives have to come from people, you know, witnessing your story and, and these types of discussions like we're having now, James. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that's part of it. Another part of it might be that I always, in some ways, had to be an observer because huh. I didn't grow up in the fishery. And I'm, I'm one of very few, if not one of the only families who, who didn't grow up in the fishery. And uh, I have two sisters, but I think as, as a young man growing up in a community where hard work ensures food on your plate, uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to think through what your place in it is if you don't have a place on a boat. Right. And, yeah. and, and I think my leanings were to- toward story and history to some extent, uh, although not facts and numbers. It was always story and it was always people for me. And that mix of story and people I think caused me to think through, well, what is the narrative at work here? What is the story at work here? Why is this person inserting humor here? Or why is it sentiment that they're drawing on in, in everyday conversation? Um, I've always been intrigued by metaphor and, and story and exchanges between people. And so for me, story is not something that that's removed, but it has to be embodied. So I think maybe the combination of never wanting to leave here, but never knowing how to stay and the pursuit of the education, I suppose, and at its root, a commitment to storytelling and the storyteller um, has yeah. maybe continued to give me clarity if, if I do have it. Amazing. I mean, and as you say, I mean, for any time that you were away, you'd left, but you hadn't left. I mean, you always stayed intrinsically linked. And again, I mean, my wife has a very similar trajectory. I mean, she grew up on the Kingston Peninsula, very rural area of New Brunswick, left for two decades. She didn't necessarily have a huge plan to leave. And when she left, it was just for a few months, but it just ended up being a couple of decades. And again, it was never part of the plan necessarily to come back, but it just was the right thing. Talk me through your adventures, essentially from obviously you grew up up there you went to school there talk me through kind of uh, what it was that took you away your studies and and your work elsewhere and then also how you came back definitely from junior high on I was a keen student and I took it seriously and I think again it goes back to maybe not knowing what my place was moving forward I linked my identity up to it and and my future up to it I guess I've remained open to things because I've never had a profession in mind I didn't proceed that way. I let, and it's been difficult, but I, what I let lead me is that trust in wanting to, to somehow work with people and, and tell their stories. And when you, I think you, you come from a background where there's no formal education uh, beyond teachers and, and nurses. Uh, traditionally, uh, they would often come from away, sometimes marry here. Um, and then sometimes, of course, people would come up in the profession locally doctors, nurses, teachers. But that wasn't my background. So the pursuit of education was a stumble. It was a a crack your foot up against a rock and and, and sort of keep going through that that trajectory of education. And I was lucky enough to have some, uh, um, to go to St. of X. And uh, that started me down the path of literature, of studying uh, English, which I, I did in high school here as well. I had some inclination toward it. Uh, obviously, you know, someone who was interested in language and history and, you know, working at 
local museums in the summers and, and things like that, you were probably going to move toward the arts, right? Yeah, true. So true. In everything I, I do, I think I'm always trying to find, well, where does this region come into play? So as I set off into literature and, and studying, I was thinking through these things. Um, a fairly important book to me was Alistair MacLeod's No Great Mischief, which is a, a pretty, it's a stunning piece of work, but it led me down a path that lasted uh, a long time of <laughs> a long time of studying. Uh, it opens with it opens with as I begin to tell this uh, that line, and in some ways that phrase uh, led me down the path because as I begin to tell this, when you think about that line, look at the verb, right? Look at the telling. Right there, yeah. he's using this written medium to understand, <laughs> yeah. conceive of, and maybe even archive, preserve, or sustain oral culture as I begin to tell this. So while you're you're reading this text, you're getting the sense, wow, hmm. he's he's doing something around the oral tradition. That led me down the path of looking more toward narrative and how that first person singular pronoun is an important piece of the literary act um, from right. from an everyday utterance with your grandfather to a piece of literature. And and that's where I started to move toward. But of course as you as you I think you're at that age and and you're at, at that level of curiosity that you start to move toward what's considered great literature, difficult literature. Uh, you start moving into literary theory and, and all kinds of complex pieces of art. And when yeah. you start looking at that, it becomes a puzzle and it becomes something to figure out and something to dig under. And uh, that led me through my master's and, and, and into my doctoral uh, research as well. Amazing. At that stage, when you were studying all of those things, and again, I mean, I have a similar educational background as well, and, and all of the things that you've just described were and are my passions. What was it that you kind of felt as you were graduating that, that you wanted to do? And then what did it lead you into? I don't think I knew. Uh, I, I, right. What I did know, though, although I was pursuing an advanced academic degrees, what I did know is I, I just didn't like getting stuck in the muck of footnoting and researching. And mm -hmm. I found it insular and I found it sort of put me in a lonely place, put me in a, in a place that was too solitary, probably for my upbringing. It's probably actually for my uh, approach to life generally, which is more community focused. Mm. And it was frustrating. It was difficult. It was hard to find mentorship in these degrees. It was difficult, uh, although I did in time. And it was difficult to find a path forward. What the question for me was, if we're talking about literature as related to all kinds of communities, a myriad of communities, in some ways, well, where are the communities? Where's the community work? Where is the, the connection? And again, you connect with people over time. This was at uh, uh, Western, so Western University in, in London, Ontario. And we started a program there called the Public Humanities at Western. And just in that title alone, right, Public Humanities, well, how do you make humanities, which is the study of something you often do by yourself, uh, reading a novel, the technology mm. of the novel itself is, is a solitary exercise. But we were up for the challenge and we uh, um, worked with and created partnerships across London, Ontario, in the arts community, amongst professors who were willing to back us and, and not all were. And uh, that's where I started to understand that the feeling of being insular, of getting too solitary, doesn't need to be but the challenge was the path had to be forged on your own or with uh, like-minded people. And it's, it's very difficult because in a lot of ways, then you give up the path of how 
professors how the system itself sort of recreates itself in the way it, it wants to. Um, so that's where this educational path took me. It took me to community engagement, principles of community engagement, principles of cooperation, right? It was a boomerang uh, effect. Uh, I went out so far, but I came back home. Right. And so what was the, of course, I mean, I'm guessing obviously COVID plays a a part in what brought you home, but talk me a bit through like what you were doing kind of post all of that and then the obviously starting a family and what was the mindset when you were kind of looking back at where you grew up and thinking we can do what we do from there and this would possibly be the best thing for our family. I was doing some work that led me to do connecting to literature in a community, it started to become something that was gaining traction. And uh, I was hired to do curriculum design in a, in a newer school, a uh, school for the advanced studies in the arts and humanities. I uh, started to create programs. Um, we did the Forest City Culture Crawl, where I took students to, to different organizations to, to understand funding and how art was displayed and how art was used in, in the community. Um, mm. Engage Western we, was another program, um, not all short-lived, but they, they had a run, and that was about yeah. inviting the community on the campus. So that's where it started and kind of led to work, right, and, and on, on mm. campus because there was some value to what I was doing. After that, this gets me into when I re- started to, in some ways, reestablish my dissertation project to be oriented more toward home. Um, mm. And that process came at the same time when we were starting to have children. So I like to take it all on at once. Uh, so, so, uh, <laughs> and and I want so I wanted to move uh, into into another job. Uh, and I worked at a, a company that books voiceover actors uh, worldwide in London, Ontario. And I was attracted to that because I felt it was uh, creative, connected me again, I guess, with voice and story. Right? That's what mm-hmm. that's what made that more practical. And mm-hmm. it was coming at the same time I was starting to do some research, uh, moving some of the more intellectual items, intellectual thinking into community. I started to work a bit with uh, Shorefast, uh, Zita Cobb, who, who's become, I think, a mentor of mine, or, or at least an inspiration uh, on Fogo, yeah. Fogo Island. So I was still finding a path in and around what interested me, but I'm going to tell mm-hmm. you the road was Bumpy James. Right. And we'll come back to the path that took you here, but your work with Zeta, and of course, I mean, truly one of those people that is going to go down in history as not just an Atlantic Canadian icon or indeed a Canadian icon, but really, I mean, a global icon in someone who, and especially with the work with the Shorefast Foundation. Tell me a bit about when you first heard about what she was doing and how that inspired you and indeed uh, your dealings with her, because it is really unlike anything in the world, someone having the foresight to see what the creation of something that incredible could do for a place. And indeed, I'm sure a lot of what you've discussed with her has inspired your work with the fisheries on Cape Breton. Can you tell me a bit about all of that? I think some of my realizations uh, in my research were, were starting to push me toward what's happening in Atlantic Canada. How can I connect this to to some of the the ideas I'm seeing at place in literature, you know, emerging from the 80s, that sort of movement, that contemporary scene. And what I started to see and what I was most attracted to, and it kind of comes back to that embodied storytelling piece, is I was starting to move away from maybe looking at things that were nostalgic or looking toward the past or looking toward tradition and wanting to stay. Mm -hmm. I was really fascinated with how are certain people 
looking at old things and making them new things. And yet there's something that feels like both. And I stumbled upon and kind of developed this, I guess, theory around uh, cultural memory and the ethics of cultural memory. That's probably getting, uh, I think, a bit too theoretical. But what, what, it, what it's an attempt to discuss is kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning that maybe it wasn't history like facts and numbers that interested me, but it was how something could contain the past, present, and future. Uh, like that novel, as I begin to tell this, how can a novel in the late 20th century be the place where oral storytelling is maybe saved or preserved? That's a fascinating thing that an object can hold something from the past. And that, that was yeah. where it was moving toward. Uh, one of the big inspirations for me was Brian McKay Lyons, the architect uh, mm. in, in, uh, in and around Lunenburg. Uh, do, yeah. If you know his work uh, in, the, in, yeah. the, in the showback campus there, yeah. So Brian, uh, who I met very briefly because we honeymooned there, it was uh, actually back in 2012, my wife and I, uh -huh. uh, and it was just beautiful. It was called, it's called the Ghost Lab. So he took students from Dalhousie. He was someone, maybe not unlike myself, who came up, went through education and felt like he wanted a place to explore how the vernacular can be updated and made relevant and important because it is. It, it's yeah. where all great things start. And that's, that's what it. the shed, right? Uh, the fishing shed, the the repurposing of boat building traditions and and craft into you know maybe modern house building or in my case I was thinking about stories and oral storytelling toward modern literature. That's the kind of stuff I was moving toward when mm -hmm. I read about Shorefast and and Zita's work with her brothers and her community on Fogo Island. I don't even it struck me like a lightning bolt. Right. It was sort of everything I was moving toward, really. And it gave me this, I think, entire um, language or way of understanding of what I was seeking, of what I was trying to, uh, what I was trying to, to spend a lot of years thinking about theoretically. And then through, I think, her, her own life's journey and her community's journey was happening in the real world. It was happening. And that's how I moved toward it. So it was somehow the, the magical blend of, of moving research toward real life, which I've always been trying to do, um, except sometimes the, it, it's not available or accessible in these types of uh, institutions, right? Um, you know, there's always cracks and there's always people, and, and, and that's how it went forward. So some chapters in my, in my thesis are, are with Zita, and, and I'm trying to examine some of Zita Cobb's work with Shorefast and trying to examine some of these ideas at work there. Um, as you said, it's an amazing feat what was accomplished there, and it's because of, of her good work and obviously the work of the community. This show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. Yeah, and I mean, to anyone listening, of course, I mean, the, the creation of Fogo Island Inn essentially you know, turned a fishing village and, and an island's entire fortunes around, provided uh, work for everyone on the island, has turned it into literally a global destination, which again, I mean, 
anyone that she would have approached and I've, again I've interviewed her and, and know this that you know everyone that she told that she was planning this said that it's it's not possible and uh, as we know with all great ideas on the east coast you know you've got a good idea on your hands if everyone tells you it's not possible yeah um, <laughs> we, we asked her about that we had her in london and she was mentoring some students and and she she said something around the idea of you know a certain amount are going to support you a certain amount are going to be indifferent and a certain amount are going to be against you and sometimes you can't convert that that lot but the mm. the gift or uh, the trick of maybe leadership and getting people on board is to not put too much emotional energy into those who are, are going to be against it or anything and it's it's a difficult lesson to learn and and I haven't learned it myself yet True. I mean, I struggle with it now. I mean, I've, I came to this place, by this place, I mean, Atlantic Canada, this region that I've had loved passionately since first visiting in, in 2000. And I moved here in 2014 and didn't know anyone, had no contacts, no connections, no job waiting for me, um, was blessed in so many ways with the support of the community wanting to help me essentially do this thing, which many people said was impossible, i.e., you know, make a living as a comedian here. And then, of course, then from that starting a print magazine anywhere in 2017 was was perceived to be madness let alone doing it zeta i think's taught me that too through conversation but but also mm. through example uh, it's yeah. a i think she often uses the metaphor and you could think of uh, fishing gear it's it's an entanglement mm. uh, living in small mm. communities you're entangled and yeah. uh, because it's a tangle uh, you have to get better at untangling so i think when the fishing's good uh, you feel like you're in a good place. And uh, when something's tangled up and holding you back, you feel like the place can be difficult. But, <laughs> but, but the, the way forward is to be independent and to be connected. It's kind of back to that piece of it's, it's to be in and amongst your family for certain forms of help and to be living your associational life respectfully, empathetically uh, with your community. And that entanglement is why what Shorefast is doing on Fogo Island is mm. profound. It's not because of world-class design, while that is extremely important. I was sitting with uh, Zita's brother. She was away from the island when I was welcomed there to do some field work and, and connections. Mm. And he was interested in when I started to become interested in their work. And it was quite early, although it took me right. a bit to reach out. And he was interested that I wasn't an architecture student because in some ways they opened with these artist studios designed by Todd Saunders, uh, Newfoundland-born, um, uh, living in Norway. And then the Fogo Island was an eventual, but obviously putting those artist studios up, these these very modern studios that challenged building norms and yet was built old and according to vernacular structures, attracted a lot of design thinkers and a lot of architects, a lot of students of architecture and you know what is happening there. And yeah. what I was really interested in was uh, reading about, well, how did it happen? And and it happened by way of uh, when they were designing furniture, say, for the Fogo Island Inn, there was designers from Europe, uh, from Canada, working with local people. It was that bringing together of forms of knowledge. It's where I feel, uncom I, I feel uncomfortable in that because it's difficult work, but it's so important. It's the work I want to do. It's, it's to bring people together. It's, it's to create those, uh, uh, to create something new out of two knowledges coming together. I mean, that's what, that's what people do here, and that's what Zeta's embraced. When I visited so the true. yeah, when I visited the inn, I mean, it's a totally different experience to see it up close. You look at the wood grain, you look at the boards uh, there, and and if you look at it up close, you forget you're in something new. Uh, 
Um, she tells a story of someone entering the inn, a community member, and they said, well, walking through the doors, well, you know, at least you built it old. <laughs> I mean, this is winning all the awards globally for, for new, for design, yeah. for contemporary, and well, at least you built it old. I mean, that, that's what I've been trying to track down in, in my, my research in some way, all my education, and in other ways, all my, my life. It's how do you build it old and yet not be nostalgic? Uh, everyone wants to move forward. So true. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm desperate to obviously hear about how you've taken all of this knowledge and, and how you've applied it to your work with the fisheries and so forth. But I guess before that, I'd love to just learn a bit about how you met your wife, Michelle. And of course, I mean, your, your children, are they four and one right now? Yeah, Penelope is going to be four at the end of August. Wow. And, and Lyndon was just one and he had his first birthday here in Northern Cape Breton. Um, Amazing. Yeah. If, you so push me too, if you push me too hard on this, you're going to get waterworks. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> beautiful. Tears, this, this tears, is, tears are always close when you're a parent. I, I find. Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we definitely become more emotional with it because I guess in many ways we're we're happier and we're looking at, at the world uh, in, in in a whole different way. But um, but so had, Lyndon had been born, or, or Lyndon was about to be born when you made the move, or, or, or talk me through the actual move back east and how it came about and, and the decision. Yeah, it was very difficult. And in many ways, it's not over yet. Mm. Um, so my wife and I met at St. Avax a, a long mm. time ago, and we stayed together all these years. She's, Wonderful. you know, yeah, everything to me and, and re the reason why I can do a lot of, of this work. Uh, Penelope was born in 2017, actually just after I returned from Fogo Island and, and Woody Point uh, Festival for the first time. So uh, it was a lot of change at, at that time. Um, uh, Penelope is just, you know, again, everything, right? It's, uh, and, and Lyndon is, is it's just, it's such a, it's a beautiful, challenging, wonderful experience. Uh, Lyndon came at a time when, when COVID was coming. Um, so we're going into to March, you know, working from home. I was working for the, uh, the voiceover company. Uh, my wife is a speech therapist in London. And... Mm. At that point, you know, she couldn't really work as we were moving toward uh, a July, early July uh, date. Uh, but yeah. Lyndon arrived June 16th and uh, Michelle, my, my mother-in-law came and, and uh, assisted, which was fantastic. And, and I guess he felt a little more free at that point. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, things obviously got more and more hectic and it was harder and harder to move. So they all, they all flew out to Nova Scotia and I joined them soon after. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I had to step away from work and look toward the future. And, and part of that future was about arriving, about uh, getting my feet on the ground, uh, about understanding where opportunities might be. Again, profession, not what I'm seeking in the sense of I'm looking for connections, I'm looking for opportunities, I'm, I'm trying to observe and, and trying to contribute. The mm. East Coast never left me, the Atlantic Canada never left me, Cape Breton never left me in part because I always felt like a responsibility. Yeah. To come, so, when, so, so to come back, and, and this, was, yeah. this was opportunity enough. And in large part, just to, to, to wrap that piece up, it was about mm. probably for Michelle, it was about family. For me, it was about family. It's, I was saying about, you know, you ask for certain types of <laughs> assistance from your family alone. <laughs> yeah. This was this type of thing. This, right. you know, we needed help. Like so many others needed help. And uh, to come home where we received that help, and we received it by way of, emotional support we received it by i got to, to stay at my grandmother's house uh travels yeah. travels back and forth between antic and ish where michelle was raised and and my home uh 
um, in, in Northern Cape Breton. Not my house, but where my parents live. As we know, I mean, voiceover work is is an incredible skill, an incredibly sought after thing. It touches almost every, one of the very few creative fields that touches every single possible industry because everyone needs a voiceover artist for something. Was it a job that required, obviously, prior to all of this, being in the office? It was something that you needed to be uh, at a desk in a place every day? Yeah, I started in 2016, mm. uh, in the mm. spring of 2016. And, and yeah, we did uh, open concept office, all the modern trappings of a startup on its way to scaling. And yeah. I was interested in a number of things. Uh, one, I liked the creative piece of it, the ability, the outreach, the connections. Uh, I worked on the global team, so I went to work very early and, and well, oftentimes stayed too late, but but that's another story. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it allowed me to understand, I think, the way larger companies that would have been out of my reach and smaller organizations, also educational organizations. Um, voiceover can find its way into really any industry and, and probably increasingly so. And I got to connect with fascinating people. Uh, I loved getting on on a uh, um, video chat wow. and, and to see live directions uh, moving between producer, creative director, and actor. Sometimes in that environment, I think when things were scaling up, I found that I wanted to get into the creative piece, into the storytelling piece. And over time, I ended up landing on the Canadian team. So that was interesting. And uh, that was actually leading up to COVID. And Mm -hmm. I really started to find my way looking and interacting with Canadian clients, because in some ways I was home and it was was a tough gig because my wife is pregnant uh, at the end of that. I, I needed to assist in any way I could. Penelope's uh, daycare was closed and, and that was a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. So what I had to do was ended up uh, to make the day worthwhile and, and to sure uh, meeting my responsibilities was I had to really call and connect with people over a long period of time. That was the exhausting piece, but I was really having fascinating discussions uh, early in the day in Halifax and in, in Newfoundland and New Brunswick. And I started to work with a number of organizations and that speaks to a lot of our connections because it didn't take me very long to know that I was going to be closely connected to you through those discussions. Uh, So I I picked up the connections, uh, not maybe inserting myself in those discussions, but being there to help, being there to assist, but but listening very closely uh, to what was happening on the East Coast, uh, because obviously our minds were starting to to turn in that direction. I mean, it's amazing. So, so of course, I mean, you, you clearly made the right decision as anyone that's from here that has moved home or indeed someone like myself that's not from here that, that has come to this region. I mean, you never meet people that have come here and, and regret it. Um, so once you got here, I mean, how did the work with the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries uh, begin? And, uh, and, and tell me a bit about it. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot to it. And, and as we chat, hopefully we'll get into a little bit of history and a little bit where it's going. Mm. But mm. the first thing to note when you come home is you're obviously doing an inventory. What What's happening? I've always watched the fisheries closely. I remember I was on the Halifax waterfront. It was a number of years ago. It was when we were without children at that time. So no family. So you were a little more free to, to you know, get to Halifax, get to the waterfront, uh, that type of thing. And I was mm. walking by, it was, uh, there was some food personality, some chefs, which I'm kind of really interested in that world. And there was a booth there and it said Victoria Cooperative Fisheries on the waterfront. And I thought, I don't even know how that connection happens. I don't even know how six hours away driving Northern Cape Breton. I know they're obviously they're, they're connecting with uh, um, um, marketing firms and, and fisheries organizations, but it just struck me as odd because there was 
not a lot of other similar organizations in it. And I literally just filed that away that something is up. Something mm-hmm. is happening. There, there's, there's someone and there's something happening that they're interested in connecting. They're right. interested in connecting. And obviously I'm, I'm looking at thinking about home, thinking about friends, uh, family members on the water, thinking about uh, the price of fish, as they say, all the, the tradition behind it. But then you're starting to think, because seafood often uh, and fish here often is going to be talked about in terms of price, uh, economics, uh, markets. Uh, and then I think at a, a local level, it's about food. But we don't think of it sometimes as seafood or as connected to chefs because that connection is maybe not uh, linked together so easily. So that's sort of one moment. You know, hey, you see those, you get those little moments and you're like, you know, something's up. I'm going to observe this and file this away, right? Fascinating. So where do you see the next steps are for the fisheries? I mean, again, they've been there and succeeding for decades and have been through numerous transitions. What do you see as the next steps for the fisheries, but also for yourself? And how do you see the next 12 months or indeed 24 months playing out? Yeah, for sure. So so again, when I arrive, you're doing this inventory, you're looking around and you're thinking you're coming from a, a city, you're, you're reading news about chambers of commerce and what's being celebrated. And and you're looking at these types of companies, these startups, these tech companies, and you get the PR machine running and communications marketing. And mm-hmm. their, their overall size of the company is, is not even a third or you know, not even half of what's happening in my hometown of, of 400 people. So you start to realize like, okay, not only is there something here, but maybe I can contribute to this, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings me home. It brings me back to the idea of people and, and interaction and storytelling. So the, the discussions happened in the fall, and it was about developing uh, a digital presence where largely there was none. There's a lot to say, but a lot of times uh, there's a fish buyer in, mm. in these communities, but that same fish buyer might not be the processor. And that same processor might not have a trucking organization to get it to market. They might not have sales or marketing. Um, now, by generational work, right? That type of community spirit that you saw in the oasis when you left the suburbs, the hard work, that invisible connections uh, that you were creating for the, uh, when you were discussing that, um, that's the type of work that that's happening to ensure this, this goes on. And it's, it's difficult work, but the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries was a fish buyer, um, but also now a processor um, um, owning a, a trucking company to get it to market. And uh, so on and so forth. And if there was a case study looking at this from an academic side of things, you would start to think, wow, they're getting this from 125 boats, you know, 125 mm-hmm. plus boats. The co-op fisheries is membership, which means the fish harvester owns the company, right? It, it's a social enterprise in that sense. It is a true cooperative. And right. so 125 boats go to sea. They bring in a live product. It is brought to market or processed in the region and then taken off to market by these trucks. And it's always that seeking of new markets and that interaction with technology that has allowed that to occur. And it goes really back to the principles of cooperatives, right? Uh, which emerged out of, on the East Coast, out of the Antikonish movement, out of St. Francis Xavier University. The co-op fisheries, uh, the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries was founded in 1955 by the fish harvesters themselves. And it was working with the extension department, of, you know, State of X University. And the yeah. extension workers, the field workers would come out and they would host kitchen meetings, uh, study clubs. 
and and they learned about economics and they learned about how uh, maybe the fish buyer shouldn't also be the merchant selling you the things you need to survive a very harsh winter. Uh, that to gain those to they gain those controls by understanding is uh, very powerful and and really the legacy of the cooperative movement as seen in the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries, uh, the largest employer in Victoria County right now. It's uh, owned by the fish harvesters themselves. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And again, I mean, so many people, I think, within this region, but especially with outside of it, would not be aware of any of this. And for something to be, in essence, so self-sustaining for so long is incredible. And like the Shortfast Foundation, all these other things that we're talking about, you know, an inspiration to people everywhere. And I want to make a quick connection there just because it might lead back to some of my story is that these universities had extension departments, right? Hmm. And the that's a metaphor, isn't it? It's, it's an extension yeah. of knowledge. And where does that come from? It comes from uh, a lot of universities uh, um, that were bringing knowledge from the campus and extending it, literally, and extending it out to agricultural communities. And there's been all kinds of spin-offs from this extension work that is a part of Canada's uh, uh, interaction between its universities and, and its communities. You can look at the Fogo Process films, which are direct inspiration for Zita Cobb and her community. That emerged out of the MUN extension movement that in the late 60s invited Colin Lowe from the National Film Board of Canada to create the short documentary films. Right. And, yeah, and it allowed fish harvesters there, uh, fishermen there, to understand that you know, we have to work together. And that itself gave birth to the cooperative, you know, organization there for their fisheries. You look at the Banff Center coming out of Alberta, that is literally an extension department from the University of Alberta that saw the value in arts and saw the value in theater. So there's a lot of these pieces of the the fabric here on the East Coast through cooperatives, through the credit union movement that you know, move us towards sustainability and progress now. That's the legacy of, of these institutions. And it's important to remember it because I think it can bring you back to the principles of cooperation and, and what that means for the future. Incredible. Everything you have to say is so inspiring and indeed everything that you've done. And I, I love your outlook, Joel, and uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. And um, is there anything that you'd like to kind of say to people? I mean, I guess one of the things that I'd love to hear is what advice would you have to someone who is looking for a change, someone perhaps living in a bigger city elsewhere in Canada and looking to the East Coast? And, and what would you tell them about here if they were kind of on the fence in terms of making a move here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, partly, I think people are attracted to what's new, uh, what's shiny. Mm. And what's new and shiny obviously can be a distraction too, right? There's a lot of organizations that need uh, new ideas, not because there's a lack of innovation. Uh, mm. it, it's because it's like Zeta having designers working with local knowledges. That bringing things together can be uh, so fruitful. In the work uh, I want to do with the, you know, the fisheries here right now is the work that's already being done. I just want to tell some of the stories and uh, want to look to some of the modern tools, like some of the e-commerce platforms, to start looking about, well, in the same way that those before us improved roads and trucking and freezing and all these sorts of things, you know, we can look at these other tools and embrace them and look toward uh, toward the future that they could provide, right? So, so I want to I want to tell stories that are already happening, 
I want to look toward uh, building uh, new markets um, by way of modern tools. And I think those who are looking to come here in terms of like looking for opportunity or work, don't just be attracted to what's new, but also get involved, get involved mm -hmm. with community organizations. Uh, everyone's so welcoming. Everyone wants to be a part of the future that we create together here. And I think the East Coast, uh, Atlantic Canada, Cape Breton uh, are very open to that, are, are very welcome to move forward together. So, so take a look and it's community first and find your way and start with a visit. Uh, start with a visit. Amazing. Again, that was wonderful. We started uh, with the name of your autobiography, which is uh, Where the Road Ends. And uh, and we've ended with the name of uh, of the new uh, Nova Scotia, but Atlantic Canada tourism campaign, which is Start with a Visit, um, which I think is a wonderful thing because right now, you know, the way that things are being uh, advertised and promoted quite often, it's like uh, we, uh, we advertise for tourism, obviously, within Atlantic Canada, obviously, due to the bubble. And of course, we're encouraging people from from elsewhere in the world to, to move here but uh start with a visit yeah, and exactly. <laughs> uh that is going to be the defining takeaway i think from this uh, beautiful chat <laughs> you did you did you started with a visit jay <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true i started with a visit and uh, uh look what happened uh never leaving ever again although when i'm <laughs> when i'm super old i may 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 exit for a few months in winter but uh we'll, we'll wait and see about that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um but Joel, thank you so much for your time and insights. And uh, I look forward to uh, doing this in, in person when that's allowed. But until then, virtual hugs all around, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was, it was great to chat. Likewise. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. The show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. Be sure to connect with Joel on LinkedIn. Just search for Joel R. Burton and watch his incredible interview with Zeta Cobb at retellingzetacobb.ca. To learn more about the Victoria Cooperative Fisheries Limited, go to victoriafish.com. Further details can be found on the edit website maritimeedit.com and I will see you next time. Podstarter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.